Welcome to Doing CX Right, a podcast where we discuss how to differentiate brands by doing customer experience right. I'm your host, Stacey Sherman, an author, award-winning keynote speaker, and mentor passionate to help you humanize business and improve experiences to achieve real results. Leadership can make or break your business success. I know that sounds cliche, but really, if you're not doing it right, great customer experiences cannot happen. So what does doing leadership right actually mean? And how do you get there? I'm excited to bring you Ala Hunkins, a leadership expert and author of Cracking the Leadership Code. He has studied and worked with over 3,000 groups of leaders in 27 countries. And you're going to hear helpful tactics to be a better leader that results in customer and employee brand loyalty. I especially like the information he provides about the brain science behind leading people as it provides clarity on why we do what we do and advice for Gen X and Gen Z to work better together. Furthermore, you'll hear about the topic of training and development in organizations, how it's evolved over the years and why investing in employee growth and development is essential for their success and impacts to customer experiences too. They're very linked. My question, however, are brands investing enough in training? What is the right balance? I'm curious to know what you think from our conversation and what you're doing to support continuous learning across your department. By the way, this episode is not all business. You're gonna hear fascinating stories from him growing up with Holocaust survivors, which gives deeper meaning to good and bad experiences and the impacts both have on us as human beings. It's powerful. Please share this episode with others who can benefit. Subscribe to my show on your favorite podcast channels and my newsletter at doingcxright.com. Now, let's get on with the show. Hello, Ella. Welcome to the Doing CX Right Show. Thanks so much, Stacey. I'm really excited to be here with you today. Thanks. Oh, I am uh, very thankful too, as I've gotten to know you off recording and watch your content and hear you and read all that you're doing around cracking the leadership code, but we're going to get into that after. Please tell my audience, who are you? What do you do for a living? Hello, audience. So my name is Alain Hunkin. So it's Alain. It's a French name. My mom's from Belgium. I grew up in Flushing, Queens. Anyway, it's a French name. And I am the CEO and founder of Hunkin's Leadership Group. And what our firm does is we help high-achieving people become high-achieving leaders, which, as you probably know, is not always the same thing. And so I've been working in the field of leadership development in one form or another for about 28 years now. And I've worked with over 3,000 groups, including 42 of the Fortune 100 companies. And depending on the day, I wear different hats around helping to build leadership capacity. So some days the hat might be podcast guest, like today. Some days it might be writing an article for Forbes for my write a regular leadership strategy column for Forbes. Some days it's not writing at all. Some days it is one-on-one executive coaching. Some days it is doing training 
or uh, for small groups or large groups. Some days it's keynote speaking. And I've had the good fortune to work in 27 countries at this point around the world. So I'd say the big umbrella around all of it is basically helping people to grow their leadership capacity in one form or another. Mm. One question to what you just said, there's a difference. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so this is an interesting thing. So we talk about high achieving people becoming high achieving leaders. And this is the perennial trap. And as I say this, you listening at home are probably nodding your heads. You probably recognize this is that so many people wind up in formal positions of leadership because they were really good at what they do. So for example, Stacey, we could say, let's say you're a software engineer and you work with a team. Like you're a really good software engineer, Stacey. We're going to promote you. You are now leading the team of people who do the work, right? So you were really good at this thing, but now frankly, your skills of being a software manager of engineers that's a totally different skill set. And so, you know, it's, you've all heard of the Peter principle, right? Where people get promoted to their level of incompetence. And so it turns out that the skills that are needed to lead well are quite different than the skills that, need, that you need to be a good individual contributor. And those skills keep changing. Then you think about being a leader of direct workers versus a leader of managers or a leader of leaders. And then how does that keep shifting? And there are some subtle distinctions that are important to learn as you go up that, what's called the leadership pipeline. Mm. Well, we will dive into that. But first, what's a fun fact people might not know about you? Okay, fun fact. So I come, this is a couple of facts woven together here. So I come from a family of professional musicians. Uh, my dad is one of five kids and they are all, he was the oldest of five. They were all professional musicians. His parents in fact, my grandmother, my mother, my father's mother was the first woman to ever play in a Broadway pit orchestra. She was a violinist. Anyway, but I played the violin as well. And I played in Carnegie Hall with the Youth Symphony Orchestra of New York on my 13th birthday. And I just think back, I mean, my kids are now older than 13. I thought, oh, what a whippersnapper I was to be in an orchestra and play in Carnegie Hall on my 13th birthday. So that is a fact you probably wouldn't have known about me. I applaud you for that courage and strength and co quiet confidence maybe at that age. And kudos, yay women leaders. <laughs> yeah, my grandmother was a force of nature. She was amazing. Love that. Why your passion around leadership? Where, where does that come from? That's a really great question. So, you know, like with many people, I think if you trace that line all the way back, it, for me, it definitely comes from my family of origin and not just the musical side of the family. In fact, my mother's side of the family. Um, I guess ever since I was little, people said, you're like an old soul. You think about these things at a deep, profound level. And I've been that way my whole life. And I think a big part of that has to do with my mother's family of origin. So it turns out my, my father and my mother divorced when I was a very young. I was one. That's not that unusual. I grew up in New York City. Me too. Me yeah. too. When, yeah. So I, so I, so I can't even imagine the two of them. Like you guys were together, mom and dad. Like they would show up at graduations and like really okay. But anyway, um, so my mother and my grandmother are both uh, survivors of the Holocaust. So my, my my mother was born in 1935. So she was a child. So when they were in Belgium, the Nazis invaded. She was six and a half years old, and she spent three and a half years separated from her mother, in hiding, somehow moved from place to place, a false identity. I mean, you could write a screenplay about her, her life. And then my grandmother amazingly survived a concentration camp, was reunited with my mother. But I share all this because they were my primary parents. And being a child of Holocaust survivors, 
you grow up in a very different experience. I grew up in New York City in the 1970s, but in some ways I was living out there post-traumatic stress in our family of origin. So very quickly, I noticed that when I went to school or when I went to my friends' houses, the culture was very different. The experience was very different there than it was at home. And I think, so I became interested in psychology and human behavior. And I've just been really fascinated about why do people do what they do? And why is it, for example, my grandmother's sister, who's also a survivor, was completely different from her. And my grandmother was a very dour, like I don't remember her smiling. And I lived with her, right? I lived with her my entire childhood. But her sister was this laughing, like, wait, you sort of had a similar experience. Why did you have such different responses to that experience? So I've been really curious about that. And if I take that into the organizational context, mm-hmm. you know, we in our organizations, we create a culture, you know, and I like to say culture is the, the water in which we as fish swim. And if you're a fish, you just, that's just the water. You just, you don't water, what's water? You just, that's what life is like. And realizing that great cultures don't happen by accident. They actually happen with a lot of intention. And there are things that we as leaders can do to create an employee experience and then ultimately creates a customer experience that trickles from that based on intention. And there are certain elements that are in place for that. So long answer to your question, like that's what really inspired me to go on this journey. Oh, we could just talk all about parents and and our ancestors for an hour or hours. Oh my gosh, I have so many questions about that. But one thing I want to draw out with what you just said is you had a curiosity. And I love that because that's what makes great leaders. I believe they don't know it all. They have a curiosity. They have a hungry for learning more. And you mentioned that, validating that. I love that. Yeah, curiosity is such an important leadership attribute. In fact, I would say in the world that we live in now, which is constantly emerging and changing, I mean, I'm thinking about things like, obviously things like AI and chat GPT and all this, like, what's it going to look like in a year, two years, three, you know, and if what we know is that we need to learn how to learn and continuously learn, unlearn, relearn, just keep doing things. So yeah, curiosity is a key skill for us to be able to move forward. Mm. I love that you said we also need to unlearn. People don't say that often. And in fact, it's so true because as adults or when we're in leadership positions, we are learning a lot as we go and we're also undoing things that weren't so good. Oh, that could keep going on and on. <laughs> I love that you said that. <laughs> it's true. What what do makes you say unlearn? Um, I think what makes me say unlearn is the fact that, and I write about this a lot in my book, the whole first section of the book is around context for how we ended up where we are. And so I think, you know, and I forget exactly who said, but in order to understand where you're going, you have to understand where you've been. So I studied the history of management and leadership. And it turns out that, you know, as I started to look back and see the origins of this field, all the roads ended up leading to one particular man who was Frederick Winslow Taylor, who's considered the father of the field of management. And so by training, he was an industrial engineer. And so he, a mechanical engineer. So he saw the workplace was a machine. So for example, you know, we just throw around the term human resources. Well, mm. someone, he invented that term. So think about it. You had 
your plant, you had your parts, you had the things that you had to build, and then you had these other parts, which were these humans. And in fact, at the time, they were considered spare parts and that they were interchangeable because in the industrial age, workers were not expected to think for themselves. They weren't expected to, like, my job as the manager or the leader is to tell you what to do, and your job is to basically shut up and do it. So one of the things that I see that a lot of leaders struggle with is what I call the inherited leadership legacy. Is that, you know, how did you learn to lead what you did? Because you probably learned from the people who led you. You know, more than anything I tell you, it's more that how did I model these behaviors? And unfortunately, we still have a lot of leaders who are living out in 2023 in industrial age, early 20th century playbook because it's been passed down. And basically it's, I'm in charge. I'm going to tell you what to do. And frankly, the reason that people default to that is because energetically, it's easier. It's like, you can be lazy. Just, you know, and anyone who's ever had a kid, you know, any parents know this. It's like, there's times like, oh, like to actually get down on the kid's level and explain, like, do we have time to do this? I don't know if I wanted to, you know, and so recognizing that, you know, in some ways, lousy leadership today is lazy leadership. It's that we have to recognize, you know, and today's world is very different. And and so what ends up happening is when you have 21st century leaders who are clinging and have not unlearned the 20th century mindset, but are still perpetuating it, they are destined to struggle. And why you see so many leaders struggling. And in my research, what I found was only about 23% of people believe that their leaders lead well. Right, So that's a kind of shockingly scary statistic. And I've shared that with many, many groups over the years all around the world. And people oftentimes say, 23%, don't they realize they're not very good? So I push back on that. I say, stop and think about it. If you had a bad leader in your organization, are you going to go up to them and say, excuse me, you're really bad at this? Probably not, because there's a power differential in the hierarchy. And speaking up like that, unless they have asked for that feedback, would be considered a career-limiting move. So why would you ever do that? So you have people, why they don't see any incentive to have to change. You know, of course, the flip side is, what is that doing to engagement? What is that doing to retention? What is that doing to turnover? What is it doing in terms of creating an employee experience? What is it doing in terms of creating a customer experience? All these things are connected. And if you go up the chain of the connection, it starts and ends with leadership. Absolutely. Well, a couple of things. You just said, shut up and listen. Um, I can't help but bring this back to your ancestors and mine in the Holocaust. I mean, speaking of literally that and, and leadership dictating how to be. I mean, boy, that is uh, a lot of lessons there. I also in the current day, have learned so much from my worst bosses. I learned what not to do. And there's a there's value in that too. Yeah, there is value. And at the same time, do you want to... How long do you want to stick it out in a toxic situation going like, I'm learning so much here at a certain <laughs> point. It's, it's pretty toxic. Like it's time to leave. So for sure. Yeah. Yes. And the important thing, I want to tie it back to customer experience for people to understand that when you do stay in a toxic environment, when you are quietly quitting or quietly not engaged or not even quietly, 
it does affect how you show up for customers. It does show up how you answer the phone as a customer service agent. They can feel it. They can sense it. And the brand has an impact. What what does customer experience mean to you as I say this? Yeah, great question. So for me, customer experience, if we think about an experience, an experience is the sum of so many different parts, right? It is the sum of all of the touch points that someone has with you, with your brand, with your company. And when I say touch points, it's not just when they're on the phone with the mm-hmm. customer service agent. That's the classic customer service. But that's, that's just like one small piece of the larger customer experience whole. So if you think customer experience is everything of how easy is it to navigate your website? You know, what do you see when you're on the website? How many clicks do I have to get, you know, to get somewhere? I mean, one of the challenges that I don't care what industry you're in, in some ways we are all now competing against Amazon in terms of, for example, the online presence, because everyone is, if I say one click, everyone knows that means Amazon. And how many people have had the experience of why is it that I can do a one click at Amazon, but when I go to your website to do this, it's 85 clicks or 30 or whatever it is. So we're unconsciously uh, comparing because they've raised the bar in that online participative, interactive customer experience. So to me, it's the sum of all the things you do. It's also the sum of the things that you don't do where people have expectations. Because if we think about what value is, Value, you know, the easiest value equation is, you know, the benefits over the costs. Now, the thing is what makes value tricky is that benefits are in the mind of the beneficiary, right? The customer, it's subjective. So, you know, the classic example here around customer experience is, you know, I'm going to use a classic example. If you look at when Apple first launched their first MacBooks, right? And so the fact was, all the software engineers and the hardware engineers at Apple were going, we could put in all these features, we can put all these features, you know, and all their competitors, like, we got all these features. And what Steve Jobs at Apple had the vision of, it isn't about, the customers don't want to be confused by all these features. What they want is ease of use. That in fact, Mm -hmm. ease of use as a customer experience was way more important than putting on more bells and whistles, which from a point of view, but isn't more always better? Not necessarily. And so the way to find out is you have to know your customer and what drives them and what's truly going to be adding value to them. And sometimes the way to add value is to subtract something. And that Mm -hmm. feels like it's counterintuitive, but it's extremely important. That is powerful. When we talk about cracking the leadership code, you've done a lot of studies and brain science behind leading people Tell me about that. Sure. So it turns out that for people to perform at their best, and this all came out, by the way, it wasn't just me sitting down writing a book. It was actually me working with groups of managers and leaders all around the world, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of groups over the years. And I kept seeing these patterns emerge. And so why is it that certain leaders create environments where people perform at their best and other ones don't? And what I saw was there were these three meta skills these three meta skills under which there's a lot of other skills, but these three skills that all great leaders do, and not just sometimes, but they do consistently. So the first meta skill is connection. I don't care if you work in the pharmaceutical business, manufacturing, real estate, tourism, we're all in the human being business. Right? Hmm. Everything gets done in and through people. 
And so the first, and that, and there's all sorts of brain science around what people want is to feel connected to. They want to feel like they're part of something. They want to feel psychologically safe, that they can show up and be fully themselves at work. So the first meta skill is around connection. And there's numerous things that I help coach, train, teach, speak about around what you can do to be a better connector with other people. The second meta skill is around communication. Uh, the fact is, the default setting of the human brain is not understanding. The default setting is misunderstanding. And so as leaders, we need to recognize that because the goal of communication is never communication's sake in and of itself. The goal of communication is to create mutual shared understanding. And that is so important because shared understanding, that's the platform on which you're gonna take all future action. And if that platform is solid, you can take great actions, make great decisions, which will lead to better outcomes. Whereas if that platform is wobbly and tippy, it's going to lead to some poor decisions, poor actions, and poor outcomes. So that's the second meta skill. We've touched on connection. We've touched on communication. And the third is collaboration. As a leader, what are you doing to create a culture or a climate or an environment where people can perform at their best? And what I found in the research was there are four key elements where people needed to perform at their best. The first one was safety, that people need to feel physically safe and psychologically safe. The second one is that the environment needs to give them energy. Like we've all go into meetings. We know what it's like. Oh, so-and-so is leading a meeting. Oh, I'm just drained before we even start, right? So what are you doing to energize the people around you? How are you understanding how to do that? And I'll just give you a quick example on that one around energy. Um, for example, I'm sure we've all been to meetings that just go on and on and on and on. And you're sitting there, it's nearly two hours in, we haven't taken a break. And at this point, your brain has left the building. Either you have to go to the bathroom or you just can't focus because biologically speaking, humans can't sit with cognitive focus at its top end with more than 80 minutes before a sharp decline. And so take a break, schedule a break, plan for breaks. I mean, these are so obvious, but they don't get done that often. So those are the first two, safety and energy. The next piece is around ownership, that people don't want to be micromanaged. Yes, they need to know what they need to get accomplished, but in terms of how they go about doing it, they want some freedom and flexibility to bring themselves to the table because that's what makes them feel more empowered in the process. And then the fourth piece after safety, energy, and ownership is purpose. People need to be reminded why. What's the big picture as to what we're trying to accomplish and how am I contributing to that? And how is this big picture why something that is relevant as opposed to increasing shareholder value? I mean, if you say, what are we in business to increase shareholder value? You, me, and every other company in the world that's for profit. Yes. So what's the point beyond that? You know, sometimes people say to me, you know, our company, our mission, it's to make as much money as we can. Like, so why aren't you selling crack? I think the profit margins are higher. Like, what do you mean? It's like, because you get my point here. I'm obviously making a joke here. But the point is helping people to understand their purpose and reminding them of that purpose on a regular basis is important. Because if you don't remind them for their purpose, it's a little bit like getting married in 2010 and then telling your, your partner, well, I said I love you on our wedding day at the altar. That was, I know that was 13 years ago, but doesn't it still count? <laughs> Right, we have to remind people of this on a regular basis. So yes. three meta skills, connection, communication, and collaboration. Mm. I want to highlight when you said about breaks, mm -hmm. and obviously we need them. Yeah. What I also want to remind people from my experiences, it's the breaks that the connections 
happen. It's before the call. It's before the meeting. It's in the restroom or at the water cooler talking. That's why breaks are so important and scheduled time to even have, you know, that kind of relaxed dialogue. Yeah. So I, I had to emphasize that as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, I think what you're touching on about the breaks, and this is, a, again, this is a relic of the industrial age. And I think too many of us confuse efficiency for effectiveness. What I mean by that is, okay, well, let's say, for example, we fly in all of our people for a conference. Let us schedule every minute of this conference. I mean, you want to make it even more oxymoronic. Let's, let's fly them to a really beautiful place on the beach, right? Except we're going to have them in the hotel ballroom the entire time. <laughs> and they're never going to have a minute, even though the beach is like, why do that? That's just cruel. All of which to say is you might think, oh, we're going to schedule every minute of this meeting because we're going to be more productive. But like you said, Stacy, the point here is, you know what? Having that unscheduled time, the time to renew and recharge is as if not more important because otherwise, what are people bringing to the time that they're focused? So, you know, same thing with communication. Yeah, yeah, you can send an email to a thousand people at the same time, but does it have the same impact as it does if you reach out to someone and share what you're trying to get across and hear from them one-on-one? -on -one? Depending on the situation, you might need that level of engagement and commitment with them as opposed to, well, I sent the email, they should know what to do. Yes, and it is also the breaks that allow people to follow up with each other, to follow yeah. up with the customer. When you're back to back to back, there's no opportunity to actually show the care and to sh problem solve because you're locked away. Oh, that's that's the corporate world. As we're getting close to the end, a couple last questions. One is training and development teams I've come to notice that there's not enough investment in training and development. It's kind of one and done, and then it's not continued. What's your observation and your belief in this? Okay, this so we could talk hours on this one. So yeah, I think a lot of organizations still think of training and development as a tick box. Like this is something that you go off and do, and now we say you did this. And, but in terms of follow-up, so, you know, for those that are in the world of learning and development, the famously, there's Kirkpatrick's four levels of evaluation. You know, the first level being smile sheets. Like, did you have fun? You know, how was the lunch food? You know, which doesn't really tell you a whole lot. And very few organizations will really invest because it would take an investment to really understand the level four of that, which is what is our return on the investment in the learning and so what I see is, unfortunately, there's too much superficiality that goes on. Mm -hmm. And the expectation that unless we build in an environment and have champions who will support that environment, where the training doesn't just happen off-site in a training room somewhere, how, mm -hmm. but what are we doing to build in capacity so that actually learning becomes a part of our everyday uh, in mm -hmm. fact, as we talk about this, one of the things that I've done over, and this happened under the pandemic, is I partnered with a technology company to take a lot of the work of cracking the leadership code. We actually turned it into an asynchronous app-based 30-day leadership challenge where people are spending literally five to 10 minutes a day setting an intention and learning a skill in a micro-learning format where literally they're watching a 90-second or less video. And then they have the rest of the day to practice doing this in their real lives as opposed to doing it in some abstract learning bubble. It's like, let's be learning as we're going. If you're going to build a change, 
you have to change your habits and you change your habits on a small daily basis, not some grand sweeping objective that's going to happen in a learning training room. So I agree. And the same thing applies where in the customer experience field, it's the same thing. I'm going to every single role, finance, marketing, sales, IT, and helping them understand the same principle of how they have to own it and the training every day to deliver excellence. So very similar uh, analogies. Mm -hmm. All right, rapid fire questions here before we conclude. I believe that we have to lead a bit differently as Gen X is leading Gen Z, Gen Z is leading and Gen X is leading the, each other. I mean, that whole yeah. dynamic. What is your advice for people listening for those as Gen Z and those as Gen X? What's your one sure. leadership tip? Well, here, great question. Again, we could go on and on about this one. I know. So we've got multi generations in the workforce now. And I'd say, the first piece of the tip is, first of all, don't stereotype people and don't put them in a box. Be like, oh, you know, all Gen Z wants is they want to they be CEO in six months. They are not, they're entire whatever. Like that just doesn't do anyone any good, right? And I would say that one thing that particularly demographically millennials and Gen Z have done in the workforce is they have brought the work-life balance, well-being, bring your human to work equation into the conversation. And I want to applaud them for that, being a Gen Xer myself, because um, that's a very important thing. I think most Gen Xers, when we got into the workplace, that was not a conversation that was happening. And now, just by a, a sheer force of demographics and supply and demand, it has to be. And so what I would say is understand that millennials and Gen Z have been treated with respect since they were four years old or two years old or babies. And so they expect that. And so I think that's just a good rule of thumb. Like treat people with respect and kindness and you'd be surprised at how well they show up for you. Now, granted, you also need to set some clear expectations and some performance requirements around that. But do both. Don't. It's not either or, it's a both and. So I would say respect and understanding, treating them like someone who is worthy of respect will go a long way. Definitely. What is one best leadership advice that was given to you in one minute? Okay. Uh, one minute, I would say best leadership advice is ask for feedback. Ask, ask, ask for feedback. Because here's the thing about feedback, whether you ask for it or you don't ask for it, that's what people are thinking about you anyway. So wouldn't you rather know it than not? Because then you can do something about it. If you don't, it's sort of like you're pretending like, all right, if I don't call you on this and you don't call me on this, we'll just kind of go along and kind of swim in our lanes of mediocrity and we'll all be okay with that. Like if that's your thing, fine. But if you really want to improve, I think, and you know, we talk about that humans only access maybe 35 or 40% of their potential. If you really want to grow and accelerate your own potential, you've got to ask other people because we as humans are notoriously bad judges of ourselves, which is why every high performer and every Olympic athlete has a coach because you can't see yourself the way others see you. So ask for yes. feedback. Yes. And in the CX world, voice of customer, voice of employee, voice of agent, voice of the patient. I mean, yeah. we could spend hours on that. It is essential. Yeah. So my last question. If you could go back in time and talk to your younger self based on what you know now that you didn't know then, what would you tell the younger you? Oh, so many good things to tell him. 
Uh, the biggest thing I would say, I think that younger self really believed in the idea that if you just do good work, your good work will speak for itself. And what I've come to learn since being that younger 20-year-old self is that life and success is all relationship dependent. And mm. so learning how to extend myself to build and nurture and cultivate and sustain relationships will yeah. serve you imminently in the long term because it isn't about you figuring everything out. It's about you looking for allies and support along the way. And at the same time, you being able to support and ally others because that is an incredibly great feeling to feel like you're not going at it alone. Oh, that's beautiful. Be a mentor, get a mentor, form your own board of directors personally. People are there. They want to they help. You have to ask. Well, thank you so much for being on my show. And I will include the links to your book and your websites and social channels so that people can find you. And thank you again for being here with me and all of us. Thank you so much, Stacey. It's been my pleasure. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining today. I hope you will apply the lesson shared and also requesting if you would leave a review on Apple, it would mean a lot. Head over to doingcxright.com to learn more ways to connect with me and improve your CX. Until next time, I'm Stacey Sherman, Doing CX Right.